It is a great pleasure to see you all here and to join together in worship, and I am happy to know that those who can't join with us will be able to join with us online. Um, but before we get to the sermon this morning, um, I have to do something that will likely put me greatly at odds with our current culture and with our, even with our legal system, possibly. But uh, after two previous attempts to pass a legis legislation that bans conversion therapy in recent years, um, Bill C-4 has now cleared the House of Commons and the Senate and received royal assent, which means that the 30th day after royal assent, which was this past Friday, um, the bill became law. The idea behind the ban on co conversion therapy is that um, the coercive negative pra practices of hunting down those who have uh, differing sexual ethics to ours and forcing them into our mold of what we believe sexuality should be, that's the, that's the specter that the government has raised. That churches are hunting down people who are gay or transgender or insert your own version here, that we are actively hunting them down and forcing them to adhere to our beliefs. But that hasn't been the case. And in response to this bill, a, an organization called the Canadian Religious Freedom Summit, and their stated goal is to protect and promote the freedom for gospel ministry in Canada, um, penned a letter. And some of you may have seen it shared by the Canadian arm of the Gospel Coalition, amongst others. And their request was that churches would share this letter with their, with their congregations today as it came into, as Bill C-4 came into effect this Friday. So I want to read that to you this morning, and we'll also be taking a look at our, our church's statement on this. This past week marked a monumental change in Canadian law and society with the enactment of Federal Bill C-4, which amends the criminal code. The law's stated purpose is to outlaw, quote, conversion therapy, end quote. We strongly oppose the coercive and unscientific therapeutic practices the bill was introduced to address. We appreciate and affirm the desire of parliamentarians to protect the vulnerable. However, we are deeply concerned that the effective reach of the legislation could be extended far beyond its stated purpose. Because its definition of, quote, conversion therapy, end quote, is vague, many are concerned that it could capture parents, pastors, and counselors who teach a biblical understanding of sexuality in a variety of situations. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees our freedoms of religion, conscience, thought, belief, expression, and association. It is our prayer that the law will be applied and clarified as needed in such a way as to honor these charter protections. We recognize that the greatest danger facing the Canadian church is not that we might face criminal prosecution, but rather that we might compromise in our teaching of the word of God or fall silent in our proclamation of the gospel. 
Along with church leaders of like conviction across Canada, we stand before you today to pledge that we are committed to obeying God above all others. Acts 5.29. With the Lord's help, we will continue to proclaim the whole counsel of God. Acts 20.27. Without fear or favor. This includes God's life-giving design for human beings made in His image, male and female. Genesis 1.27. With sexual intimacy reserved for the covenantal union of a man and a woman. Genesis 2.24. We will continue to issue the call to repent of all kinds of sin and to believe the gospel knowing that we all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and that salvation through Jesus is the one true hope for the world, Acts 4.12. We will continue to love and serve all people in our community without distinction in Jesus' name. As we press on in the work of ministry, we will trust our Heavenly Father to guard us and keep us and to work out His greater purposes for our good and His glory. We continue to pray for our government and to plead with the Lord to have mercy on our needy land. This is the letter that they put out. And in addition to this letter, I thought it would be valuable for us to clarify as a church, for any who haven't, I can't imagine many of us spend a great deal of time reading and rereading our church statement of faith and constitution and what have you, but Items 14, 15, and 16 from our church statement of faith within our church constitution are marriage and the family, manhood and womanhood, and gender and sexuality. Marriage and the family. We believe the family to be the basic building block of society. Marriage is understood to be a publicly solemnized binding covenant between a man and a woman. It is intended to be held in reverence until death separates the union. No person of Elk Point Baptist Church with the power to do so shall knowingly solemnize the union between a professing believer and one who professes to be an unbeliever. Manhood and womanhood. We believe that both men and women were created in God's image. Equal before God as persons and as Christians, they are joint heirs of salvation and the inheritance to come yet they remain distinct in their masculinity and femininity. This means that within the family, God has called men to self-sacrificially love their wives and to lead as heads of their family, just as Christ loves the church and is its head. Wives, likewise, are called to live in submission to their husband's headship, just as Christ was submissive to the father's headship. This also means that within the local church, the roles of elders and deacons, along with the primary preaching ministry of the church, is restricted to only qualified men. Where there is leadership and service that does not violate the clear commands of Scripture, then men and women who are walking in submission to Christ can serve all other functions of church life and leadership under the oversight of the elders. Gender and sexuality. This one was recently added to our church constitution by the membership with the foresight of what we are realizing today. We believe that in addition to the above Article 15, we affirm that gender and sexuality are not evolutionary peculiarities nor a matter of personal determination. Both find their origin in the creative will of God. We are not self-creating or self-constituting. Sexuality and gender, then, are not plastic and endlessly malleable to fit human preference. We also believe that when God created humanity, he did not make us sexless monads. Male and female, according to the Bible, are fixed, bodily realities, meaning they're not interchangeable or eradicable. 
They are objectively known, such that the identity of who we are as sexed humans is not a mystery. We believe that male and female imply substantive differentiation, although both contain equal value, worth, and dignity. This differentiation is observed down to the chromosomal, anatomical, reproductive, physiological, and emotive levels. This physical difference starkly manifests itself in the anatomical design of male and female, which makes procreation possible and the fulfillment of the cultural mandate actionable. We believe that the rejection of one's God-given gender as determined by chromosomal structure at birth is a rejection of the purpose and design of God for that person. Sexuality and gender are not self-chosen, and we believe that the expressions of such are bound by the revealed will of God in Holy Scriptures. We believe that the following behaviors are in contradiction with the Bible. The use and the creation of pornography, bestiality, polygamy, lust, adultery, orgies, non-monogamy, rape, pedophilia, homosexuality, fornication, incest, prostitution, cross-dressing, effeminacy, androgyny, illicit seduction, transgenderism, and sexual abuse. We believe that in the Christian gospel there is complete forgiveness for any sin, including those identified above, and that in Christ's mercy and grace, none of these transgressions need identify a person who is in Christ. We believe that God offers redemption and restoration to all who confess and forsake their sin, seeking his mercy and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. We believe that as members of Elk Point Baptist Church, we must minister in love and truth to those among us and to those who come to us through family or friends who struggle with sexual sin and seek our encouragement to forsake their sin. That's straight out of our church constitution. And it might seem a little bit overbearing to read it all. still barely legal. I might just walk the line of still barely legal. But if someone of any age comes to me or any of the elders of this church and come to us of their own free will, struggling with issues of gender or sexuality, and I say these same words to them that I just read to you out of our church constitution, then according to the Criminal Code of Canada, I will be guilty of providing conversion therapy to that other person and therefore guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term not more than five years. That is in effect as of Friday. This isn't an issue unheard of in the Lakeland. Issues of gender and family and manhood and womanhood and sexuality are present everywhere and our stance in relation to them will become defining of our public faith in the weeks, months, and years to come. This isn't a one-off issue. Both Jim and myself in the last five years that I've been here have dealt with this exact thing no less than half a dozen times. So that means in the last five years, Jim and I, if this had been in effect, would have been in contravention of those laws. Don't miss this, family. My role as pastor and your role as believers in this world is to believe and to speak clearly the truths found in Scripture. 
And what we read from our church statement of faith is taken directly out of God's Word. And an element of what you and I believe was just outlawed and made illegal in your country. If you care to look on our church website or in the church foyer there, I have our items for our Constitution as well as that letter. And on the church Constitution, you will see a never-ending list of footnotes that identify each scripture that the principles were taken out of. So to wrap my statement on this, I plead for your prayers. Pray for your country. Pray for your leaders, both in government and in church. Pray for those who will be standing in the courts in regards to these issues, both challenging them and being censored by them. Pray for your pastor and your elders. Pray for those who struggle with issues of gender and sexuality. And pray that God will freely grant the boldness and determination that will be required to stand for his gospel in a world that is hostile to it. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that you are good that you have preserved your church through millennia of attacks on your word and that you will continue to do so. We know that you have put in place the political leaders that we find ourselves in submission to in this country. The federal, provincial, and municipal leaders are ordained by you. But we also know that you have commanded us that we are to follow them only so far as they do not contravene your will and your expressed will in your scriptures. And they have done so today. Lord, we pray that this bill would be clarified and or repealed or fixed in such a way that it continues to protect vulnerable people from predatory people, but that it would no longer be worded in such a way that it could be used as a weapon against your church. But Lord, if that is not to happen, Lord, we know our world is growing more and more wicked by the day. We pray for the determination and the courage to stand up for your word in whatever opportunity we are given. For those that will be facing these things down in court from one end or another, we pray that you would give them boldness. We pray for the pastors and the elders across the country who are together committing to stand for what you have declared in your word. And Lord, we do pray for those who have struggled with issues of gender and sexuality. Lord, each man, woman, and child on this earth have struggled with their own particular sins and sins that we are so keen to follow sometimes. Lord, the sin of 
gender and sexuality perversion, Lord, is no different. We thank you that you have offered your free gift of forgiveness for those who would turn from their sin and commit to follow you. Lord, buoy up the spirits of your church. Turn this for good and for your glory. God, we commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you for praying with me and continuing to pray for God's church and for his servants. And after an introduction like we just had, the temptation would be to go on to preach a dedicated message on maybe biblical sexual ethics or perhaps righteous civil disobedience. But that's not our plan this morning. We're going to switch gears and go back into the passages that we have been studying. Our church has been steeped in a beautiful tradition of expository preaching and the practice of Lectio Continua. That is preaching that exposes what the individual texts of Scripture themselves intend to say and continuously preaching through whole books of the Bible. While there is occasion for the odd topical sermon, the great bulk of our preaching just picks up where we left off in the Word. Maybe that pattern might seem mundane or unimaginative, but it does accomplish some beautiful things. And most important in my mind is that the devoted attendee of our church will eventually hear the entirety of God's Word preached. And in doing so, we'll receive truth from every passage in God's Word. This morning, we're going to continue from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. The other beautiful thing that I've seen come out of our practice of Lectio Continua is the faithfulness of our Lord. Like I said, it might be tempting to pick a topical sermon that just fits with what we're facing today. And I could do that from now until the day I retire look around and see kind of what's going on in the church and go, I should preach on this because our church is facing X issue or that kind of thing. But as we have been faithful in preaching through whole books of the Bible, God has made that unnecessary. It is remarkable the number of times that I've seen him orchestrate the perfect text that just happens to fall on the Sunday that I would like to preach on this particular issue. Today is no different. Let's read this morning's text, and then I will explain why. Again, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is and remains God's word. The reason in my mind that today's text is perfect for the setting of such upheaval in which we live are as follows, and these will be my kind of two main points. God has given us godly examples to follow. I touched on this last week and we'll expand on it a little. And more importantly, importantly, God is indeed our steadfast anchor. In times of such upheaval and uncertainty, the obvious responses are almost always to look for an example or a leader to follow and to look for unshakable ground on which to make our foundation. Last Sunday, I reminded you that those who desire to maintain a vital faith are told to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I also encourage you all to become students of the faithful generations who have come before you. And so there's a reason why immediately following these instructions regarding the imitation of the faithful who had gone before them, our author then gives the example of Abraham to prove his point. The passage this morning is not about Abraham per se. It's about the Lord. So I'm not going to make it about Abraham. But I do love how the author springboards off of his own point about following godly examples. I don't know about you, but when I'm given a scriptural teaching or instruction, especially about something as lofty as the ultimacy of God, sometimes I'm left scratching my head as to how to apply that or work it into my life. Okay, I, I believe it's true, but what does that look like? In their day, Abraham gave the readers of this passage a framework of how to do that. Abraham trusted implicitly in the promises of God. When commanded to leave the land of his family or commanded to sacrifice his one and only heir of his old age, he obeyed, not trusting in his own understanding, but trusting in the promises of God. Brothers and sisters, when you and I are well-schooled in the ways that God has worked in the lives of the saints throughout the generations, we are then given a variety of frameworks displaying how the great truths of Scripture might be applied. I can guarantee you the faithful reformers, the apostles, the early church fathers, if they were alive today, they wouldn't care a lick whether or not you knew their names or their birthday or any of their personal peculiarities, but they would love to hear that the examples they've set are allowing faithful believers to follow the Lord in their day. When Martin Luther stand, stood before the Diet of Worms and said these words, 
My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. When he stood before them, he wasn't doing it for his own fame. He was remaining true to the Word of God. And today we can follow in his example in clinging to Scripture as the final authority in all matters of faith and practice and the true basis of our Christian union. Just so, Abraham provided for the writer of Hebrews a great example of both the type of person we should imitate as well of what it would look like to trust in the promises of God. But like I said, the greater point here in our passage today is the trustworthiness and steadfastness of our God in a world that is increasingly unsteady, unstable, and untrustworthy, this is good news. What other things do we like to place our trust in? Our money? Things like investments and RRSPs and retirement savings, etc. It doesn't take long of reading or even looking at our own bank accounts sometimes to realize that all of that can be wiped out in dozens of ways. Maybe for the perpetually healthy, we trust in our own bodies. The strength's always been there until it isn't. I need not tell you how untrustworthy governments can be. Politicians have become synonymous with deception and flattery and fakery. Even family, our absolute closest and most trusted human relationships of all, will at times let us down. I hate to pull the rug out from under you, or maybe I should say the security blanket off of you, but there is nothing on this earth that you can totally trust. And in days of such uncertainty, that can leave you feeling like you're trying to stand on a plate full of jello. God, however, can, in fact, be trusted at all times. He has shown us that he is indeed the sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And if you desire to find any measure of true security in this life, then you must look to God as the only source of that. And God does desire that you would have this manner of certainty. Our passage this morning tells us that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And he made that oath by the greatest thing he could swear on, himself. Take a moment to think about what God is doing here by making this oath. God has said that he would do something. In Genesis 12, he tells Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. But then he doubles down by swearing an oath by himself in chapter 22 of Genesis. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
God didn't need to do this. He didn't need to make that oath. The fact that he said it was more than enough. And even our author this morning recognizes that it is impossible for God to lie. So God said it, it's going to happen. When God makes this oath to Abraham, he is doing it entirely for the benefit of these heirs of the promise. He's not making anything more sure by promising it because he is God and he cannot lie. God does it for the heirs of the promise that they might know the unchangeable character of his purpose. And who are these heirs? Galatians 3.29 If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. You should feel the beautiful Father's heart coming through here. God knows our tendencies to doubt and to waver and to fear. And so that we might know the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guarantees it with an oath. So that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast in the hope set before us. God didn't need an oath to make his word sure, but he cared enough about his chosen people that he swore by himself to give us greater confidence. What, what sure hope can you imagine? Well, let me show you one more thing. When God promised to Abraham, he guaranteed it with an oath by himself. Brothers and sisters, from Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. God has guaranteed your hope by Himself all over again by sending the Holy Spirit as a sign and a seal. 2 Corinthians 1, 20-22 All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There is no more certainty to be had in the universe in anything. God has spoken. He has promised with an oath by himself and then he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit. And all that combines that us, the heirs of his promise, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I said earlier that today's text is the perfect text for a setting of upheaval that we live in. God is indeed our steadfast anchor. Brothers and sisters, don't be shaken 
from that steadfast anchor that you have found in Christ. Only in that hope will you persevere into the end. And notice in that encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us that there's no specific mention of the conditions in which that hope is to be exercised. There's no, this is the situation when. I believe that's because the conditions in which our hope is exercised is ultimately irrelevant. Not in the temporal sense, of course. I know that each of our lives have its share of events that will have huge effect upon us personally. But in the end, whether our life is lived in comfort and ease or in persecution and trial, the measure of our life will be found in our perseverance in faith. Whether it is COVID or Bill C4 or marital bliss and moments of joy, our hope must remain in God, in the promises He has made, in the promises He has kept, and in the hope He has given us in the future. If we do so, we can never be pulled off course. If we stay the course, then we will indeed meet our Savior one day. And as we close, I ask that you'd hear the words of our Savior to his disciples from John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We are faced with no end of trials and tests of our faith and the reality of our faith. And particularly as we see things like this coming up where we, particularly in the West, have generally had it fairly easy as far as being able to pursue our, our faith in ease. We have not had the government breathing down our necks about what we believe as long as we're content to just kind of do it on our own and not make an issue out of it. And now that's turning around and saying, even in your own churches, if one of your own people comes to your own pastor and says, I'm struggling with this, and then your pastor gives the words that are found in Scripture to them as counsel, that's now punishable by up to five years in prison. We are entering a new day for our church where more and more it's going to become less and less easy to be a Christian. And we need to be prepared for that. If you're going out fishing, you will 
put your plug in your boat, and you will make sure that you have an anchor and that the anchor is well tied and ready for where you're going. And we need to make sure that our anchor is prepared before we dive into a place where it's going to get rough, it's going to get choppy, and our anchor needs to be firmly tied to Christ. So spend time in your word. Cherish this time we get to have together here, worshiping as a body, and encourage one another. And if you are doing so, have no fear or hesitation to go and speak boldly the truths of the kingdom. Consequences are no. Because no consequences, no nothing that our world can throw at us is worth compromising on the truth of the words of Christ. Know the words of Christ, believe them, and walk them out, no matter where you are. Stay this course, my brothers and sisters. Persevere in this. And Lord willing, one day we will rejoice together before the throne of God, knowing that we have persevered unto the end. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, you have prepared us for this. You have given us all the tools that we need to follow you. You give us so much more than we can handle on our own. But you have given us everything we need to handle things with your help and with your guidance and your direction. And we pray that we would repeatedly come to you and to your word for guidance and instruction as to how to handle the things that the world throws at us. God, we pray that you would cause us to not shy away from the truth, to hold to it in every situation, that we would not be ashamed of you or your gospel, but that we would speak it boldly knowing that the truth contained therein is the only good news for a dying world. God, prepare your church. Prepare our hearts by your word and by the preaching of the word and by our time together in encouragement and ex exhortation of one another. And Lord, we thank you for all the ways you have blessed and cared for us. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you please stand with me as you're able and hear our benediction from Hebrews 13. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.